Let us uh, delight in the words of our God as he speaks to us in 2 Samuel chapter 24. That's our sermon text for today, 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's on page 258 in the Pew Bible if you'd like to use that resource. Ruthie and I did enjoy our time away on vacation, but it's always good to be back with you, our beloved church family. Uh, We were actually here last Lord's Day, sitting in a different spot, further in the back to the side there, and it was so nice to be able to uh, participate in all the elements of the worship service, but with no platform responsibilities. And I was especially thankful for that when Pastor Mike started reading that long list of names last week uh, from 2 Samuel 23, the list of David's mighty men. In fact, uh, he was so wiped out trying to memorize and all those pronunciations that he needed a week's vacation to recover. So he's not here today. Uh, pray that he, he would be renewed in every way as he recovers uh, from that trauma. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing him and his wife, Kiera, and their daughter, Verity, uh, next Lord's Day, God willing. Uh, chapter 23, we are introduced to David's mighty men. But here in chapter 24, we are introduced to a major problem. Chapter 24 of 2 Samuel begins with this disturbing statement. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Kindled against Israel. To my knowledge, there is only one thing, according to Scripture, that kindles God's wrath. And it's sin. The word again, it says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This signifies that this was not the first time that the people had kindled God's anger. And if you are familiar with Israel's history, you know that. Long before David ever showed up on the scene, remember all the murmurings in the wilderness, rebelling against God, going after other gods, um, countless times, numerous times. And yet even after David, uh, we don't know what triggered God's anger this time. We don't know what they did to sin against the Lord on this occasion, but it wasn't the first time. It certainly wouldn't be the last time. Five centuries after David's lifetime, 500 years later, the prophet Daniel confessed to the Lord on behalf of the people, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Decades after Daniel's lifetime, The priest Ezra fell on his knees and confessed to the Lord, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. So again, we're not sure what sin that the people of Israel committed on this occasion. Perhaps it was their supporting Absalom and his conspiracy against God's anointed king, Absalom's father David. That could be the case. But whatever it was that kindled the Lord's anger, we can be sure, based on this text, that it was a sin on the part of the people of Israel, and God was going to use a sinful act on the part of David to bring judgment on the nation as a whole. Let's look at the sinful act 
in verses 1 and 9. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel in Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around the Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah in Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. This is a perplexing passage, this portion we just read, in light of two nagging questions that arise in light of it. Number one, who prompted David to sin? And number two, what was the precise nature of David's sin in taking this census? We know that it was a sin for David to do this because, as we'll see a moment in verse 10, David confesses, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. We'll talk more about his confession in just a moment, but I want to consider the two questions that arise from this portion of the text. The first question, who prompted David to sin, requires a carefully nuanced answer. And here's why. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, look at it again, says, The Lord incited David against Israel. But if you were to go to the parallel account, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, there it says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So how do we reconcile these two explicit statements? The key to reconciling them is to look at them in light of Scripture's teaching as a whole. The reformer Martin Luther rightly emphasized that according to Scripture, the devil is God's devil. Think about that. The devil is God's devil. Even what Satan designs for evil, God can design that very same thing and even use Satan in the carrying out of his ordained purpose to accomplish a good thing. God is sovereign, not Satan. We must understand that. Therefore, everything, everything in the universe happens according to God's plan. Either he is sovereign of all or he's not sovereign at all based on the mere definition of sovereignty. David ordered that a census would be taken because God ordained that David would order for a census to be taken. But Satan is used as the secondary cause 
a tool, if you will, that God used to bring this about. God ordained David to take this census, but God is not to be blamed for David's sin. You say, well, how is that? Well, again, we have to go by this uh, teaching of Scripture as a whole because Scripture never contradicts itself. And whatever is happening in this outworking of God's plan, one thing is clear, and James tells us in his New Testament letter this fact about God. God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does God tempt anyone. It is therefore appropriate to say, God was sovereign over David's sin, but Satan is the one that solicited David to sin, and David himself is responsible for his sin. He couldn't say, the devil made me do it. Because the scripture also says in the book of James, in that same section, that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own evil desire. So this takes us to the second question. Remember, the answer to the first question, who prompted David? Well, God is sovereign over David's sin, but Satan is the one that solicited or tempted him to sin. And ultimately, David is responsible for his sin. God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility, and human responsibility does not negate God's sovereignty. We may not understand how they come together, but we don't have the infinite wisdom of God either. Okay, So we simply are to embrace what he has made known to us in his word. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things, the things we don't understand, belong to the Lord our God, but the things that have been revealed to us belong to us and to our children forever, that we may obey all the words of this law. So that's how we would answer that first question. How did this prompting come about? The second question is, what was the precise nature of David's sin? The text doesn't explicitly tell us. Census taking itself was not a sin before, because God commanded Moses directly to take a census of Israel at the beginning of their wilderness wanderings after their exodus from Egypt, and then again at the end of their wilderness wanderings before they entered into the promised land. That census probably had a few different purposes, but certainly one of the purposes was to show that the number of their armed forces at the end of the 40 years was actually less than it was at the beginning of the 40 years to show that when they conquered the promised land, it was going to be God's doing, not theirs. It was the Lord who was going to bring the victory, not necessarily their armies, even though God would use their armies to bring that about. And yet, as we consider this census that David took, it seems to be motivated by pride. The scriptures don't explicitly tell us that, but there are hints in the text that it's motivated by pride on David's part. And I think the clue to this is in verse 3, Joab's response. Look at verse 3 again. Here's how Joab responded to David's order to number the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? It's not that David was just getting this for record-keeping purposes uh, to serve some perhaps higher purpose. Why is it that David delighted in taking this census? 
And here he has Joab, of all people, trying to dissuade him from doing that. I mean, if you know anything about Joab, this guy has anything but a tender conscience. Right? I mean, this guy could be brutal. He could be the most insensitive guy, perhaps in the nation of Israel. And yet even he knows that this is a bad idea. He knows that this is a senseless census. But worse than that, it's a sinful census. It can serve no good purpose. But we read at the beginning of verse 4 that the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of his army, which goes to show Joab wasn't the only one trying to dissuade the king from taking the census. The other commanders, too, were trying to prevent him, trying to persuade him not to do so. But David disregarded their objections, their protestations, and he ordered that the census be taken anyway. Aren't we often guilty of the same thing? We're bent on doing something. It's something that we want to do. It's something that we delight to do. A certain sin that we're going to... And God in His mercy sends people in our path to keep us from doing it. It could be our parents. It could be our siblings. It could be a trusted Christian friend. God might even use circumstances that that come up before us that serve as like little barriers to keep us from going down the wrong path. But we, like David, so easily disregard those barriers. We might even disregard accountability partners to which we have committed ourselves who have warned us against the dangers of sins that they know we're prone to, and yet we just plow right through those barriers and do what we want to do anyway. In counseling, we have a simple principle from Scripture that often comes into view. We do what we do because we want what we want. And if we delight in something, if we really want to do something, Neither hell nor high water is going to get in our way. And that's why we are responsible for the sins that we undertake because we delight in them. We might regret it later, but we delight in it as we're heading into it. What a warning this is for us. So David's word prevailed over Joab and the commander. So in obedience to the king, they canvassed the country. And nearly 10 months later, they bring the results of the census. All in all, there were 800,000 men in the northern Israelite tribes and then another 500,000, half a million in Judah. So a total of 1.3 million fighting men in Israel. That is an astounding number. To put it in perspective, uh, the U.S. has the third largest military in the world with 1.4 million active personnel. Now, all of these men weren't active, like they weren't in the regular army, but they were the ready militia throughout Israel. So at any time, these valiant men could be summoned and they knew how to fight. It was an impressive number. And that's what the text seems to imply, that David knew that he had a large regular army and a ready militia, and he wanted to boast actual numbers. Say, How does this apply to us? Well, I found myself asking this question to me, and now I'll ask it of you. What sort of censuses do you take in the little kingdom of your life? 
What are things that you might find yourself boasting in or feeling really good about for you delight in this thing because it shows that your confidence is in this thing. Perhaps you're even relying on this thing. This is a ready, good, boastful resource for you. For some of us, it could be our bank account or our financial holdings. Uh, is, you don't, you're not checking your bank accounts or your investments just to see the current state of things. You're doing it because you know it's growing. You know that you are wealthy and you like counting the money. The Bible warns us saying the love of money is the roots of all sort of evil. It drowns men in destruction. It's, it's terrible. The Bible warns us against that. We can uh, find, we, we can become braggadocious about our academic credentials, uh, how far we have advanced in education. We can boast about our athletic achievements. So even children at the youngest ages, can boast about who got picked first on what team. And that goes all the way through elementary, middle school, high school, sometimes even college, and in some cases, professional sports. We boast in our athletic achievements, or we boast about the accomplishments maybe we haven't done, but our children have done. Look at how well they're doing in sports, or how well they're doing in academics, or these other extracurricular activities. Aren't we great parents? We may not say that, but that's the implication. We can take a census of our health and fitness. Brothers and sisters, we can even take a census. How diabolical is this? We can take a census even of our service to the Lord. Look at how long I've been serving in this ministry. Look at how many ministries I serve in, especially compared to so-and-so. Man, if people only knew how much I give to this church, this church probably wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for me. Now, I'm perhaps giving a, a little to exaggeration here. We wouldn't actually verbalize these things. But sadly, sometimes these thoughts cross our minds. Whether we're boasting about our past accomplishments, our present position or progress, or our future plans, Scripture says all such boasting is evil. It's not just not good. It's evil. And James goes on to say, so whoever knows the right thing to do and does it not, to him it is sin. And it's in that context of what's the right thing to do? Well, the right thing to do is not to boast in these things, not to put your confidence in these things, but to put your confidence ever and always in the Lord. The Bible says repeatedly, the Lord shall be your confidence and shall keep your foot from getting caught. David's act of taking a census reflected a shift in David's object of faith, or so it seems, from the Lord to the military strength of the nation Israel. And Scripture says, whatever is not from faith is sin. At the root of every sin, listen, at the root of every sin, every sin is a failure to trust God. That's at the root of every sin. David sinned and he knew it. And that is indicated by what happens next. His sinful act is followed by his sincere confession. Look at verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people 
And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. As soon as David heard the count, he was crushed to the core. The Bible says his heart struck him. And we've seen that happen with David before, when he was marked by a sensitive conscience. His immediate confession is followed by his inward conviction. In other words, as soon as David feels the conviction within, he immediately goes and confesses this to the Lord. And this is showing spiritual progress in this season of David's life. Yeah, he's far from perfect. He, he, he sinned, obviously. He even confesses that he sinned greatly. But notice this. This confession is almost identical to the prayer that David prayed after he sinned with Bathsheba. And then tried to conceal his sin by having her husband, Uriah, killed. But notice the difference. This time after David sins, he doesn't try to conceal it. He immediately confesses it to the Lord. And this time David does so before a prophet confronts him rather than after a prophet confronts him. As soon as he feels that inward conviction, he immediately confesses his sin to the Lord. David had learned the lesson that his son Solomon would later articulate and it's recorded in Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever forsakes them and confesses them will have mercy, will find mercy. So this immediate heartfelt confession from David shows that while he's still far from perfect, he's still susceptible to sin, even great sin. He's becoming a quicker confessor. And that shows he's making spiritual progress. As one commentator put it, he repents without prophetic prodding. He repents without prophetic prodding. So again, I ask you, what about you? Over the course of your Christian life, the longer you live, as time marches on, are you becoming a quicker confessor? When you are struck with conviction, do you ignore it? Do you distract yourself with something else? Or immediately upon feeling the pain of conviction, do you go to God in prayer, confessing that sin and making your first priority to make things right with God before even anyone else finds out or confronts you about it? Because you know that God knows what you have done and you want to be made right with Him. That's a mark of spiritual growth and maturity. Sin is costly. But because of God's mercy, we can be forgiven and still enjoy fellowship with Him. That's a wonder, isn't it? Sin is costly. Make no mistake about it. And we will see this in the verses that ensue. Sin is costly. But because of God's mercy, we can be forgiven and enjoy fellowship with God. The God whom we have rebelled against, the God whose anger we have kindled, we can still be forgiven by Him and enjoy fellowship with Him, not because of how great we are, but because of how good and great He is, because His mercy is great. And we see this throughout the remainder of the chapter. The consequence of David's sin, and whatever sin Israel as a nation had committed against the Lord that had kindled His anger, the consequence for those sins are severe. 
But David still receives forgiveness and enjoys renewed fellowship with the Lord. Let's see how this plays out throughout the remainder of the chapter. The third point is the severe consequences. So far, we've seen the sinful act, taking other senses. We've looked at the sincere confession that immediately followed that sinful act. And now we're looking at the severe consequences as the Lord brings these about on account of the sin. Look at verses 11 to 14 of 2 Samuel 24. And when David arose in the morning, and it could be that he was arising maybe from sleep, or he could have spent the entire night in prayer as he confessed his sins to the Lord. But as David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months from before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. At the beginning of revealing his judgment to David, God, through Gad, has David pick his poison. Have you ever done that as a parent? Some of you moms and dads are smiling. All right, you can get a spanking, or you can be grounded for a day, or we cannot do this thing that we were going to do this weekend. As a parent, you're thinking, hmm, I wonder which one they'll choose. Or kind of like calculates almost like a game to us, maybe. Well, God makes David pick his poison, and God isn't involved in games here. He tells David, consider and choose. You want three years of famine? Three months of running before your enemies? Or three days of a plague that's going to sweep across the land? And David's just, he's just in agony. David, you choose. You choose what you and the nation are going to go through. And David's just, he's just in agony. All three choices are terrible. And they're intended to be. And David doesn't pick a specific one of these choices. Did you know that? But one thing he knows. David knows that if you have sinned against the Lord and have kindled his anger, the only hope for someone in such a position is to cast yourself on the mercy of the Lord. It is far better to commit yourself into the hands of the Lord than in the hands of people. Do you remember that passage that Brother Noble read moments ago from Isaiah 55, where the Lord says, as the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We tend to use that in a very general sense, talking about God's sovereignty, and that's okay. God's ways are beyond us. We can't understand. But in the context of Isaiah 55, what is the Lord talking about? He's talking about his compassion. He's talking about his mercies toward us. He's talking about his goodness toward us. And he says, the ways of the Lord are higher than your ways. 
God treats us a lot better, not only a lot better than our sins deserve, he treats us a lot better than humans tend to treat each other. So David says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord rather than into the hands of man. Why? Because his mercy is great. Dale Davis writes, quote, David is about to meet Yahweh's wrath and yet is convinced of Yahweh's mercies. Somehow he imagines that the hand that strikes him will nevertheless spare him. See how well he knows his God. In his crises, his theology seems to come out almost by reflex action. Is this not as it should be? Must you not have your best theology for your darkest moments? And in the disasters and in the sins of life, is there a kinder place to fall than into the hand of the Lord? End quote. I spent most of my life growing up outside of Chicago in a suburb called Naperville. I was there from age nine until I went off to Bible college. And uh, so as a kid, as a uh, you know, middle school, high school student, I made numerous trips to Brookfield Zoo, the big zoo out in Chicago. And about a decade after I left, there is an incident that occurred at Brookfield Zoo that made world news, not just national news, but world news. A three-year-old toddler had somehow gotten free from his mother and had broken through a barrier and had fallen 18 feet into an enclosure with seven gorillas. Can you imagine? Seven gorillas in this enclosure, and the people were utterly terrified for this child. But he was rescued. He was spared. You wonder, how did he get out of this horrible predicament? Well, one of the gorillas, who's actually still alive, this occurred in 1996, this gorilla is still alive, Bintijois, picked up the boy, cradled this toddler in her arms, and carried him over to the door where the zookeeper could pull him out to safety. And people were utterly amazed by the story. You know why? Because we don't normally associate gorillas with kindness. We don't associate gorillas with gentleness. And that's what makes the story so amazing. There are other stories that could be shared of children or adults that encountered gorillas that did not turn out this way. This was an exception. And one of the commentators points out, I think, something very insightful. He said this, We may be grateful to Binti, but would prefer not to trust her with another child. (laughs) And you know what? Sometimes we see God's mercies that way, sadly. We see God's display of mercy as a divine exception rather than as a daily expression of God's goodness. What do the scriptures say? God's mercies are new. How often? Every morning. Friends, we are alive and sitting here today because of God's mercy. God owes us nothing, not even the next breath that we take. God's mercies are new every morning. We're enjoying this beautiful sunshine. It's a mercy of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
the sky shows his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech and night to night knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice isn't heard. It's gone out through all the world as a witness to the greatness of God, and not just to God's greatness, but to his goodness, because we get to enjoy that creation every day. His mercies are new every morning, and yet we can tend to see when God acts mercifully, see that as a divine exception rather than as a daily expression of his goodness. But notice David. Even as he is about to undergo God's judgment, he knows that he is not facing a gorilla God. We would never say that. We, we would never equate God with a gorilla. But in terms of showing mercy, do we tend to think that God is more dangerous than good. And yet all of God's character qualities are in perfect harmony with one another. He is perfect in his justice, in his wrath, his mercy, his love. David was a believer who understood God's justice. He said, you'll be just when you judge. But he also had a grip on God's mercy. Or as one writer put it, it's better to say that God's mercy had a grip on David. In verses 15 to 17, this is the hard part. We see that God's judgment, though severe, is moderated by his mercy. Look at verses 15 to 17. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Let me just stop right there and say, if David was boasting about numbers, in a matter of about a day, 70,000 of them were gone like that at the breath of God. Verse 16, And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, literally enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep... What have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Like I said, these are tough verses. 70,000 people dead. Angel over Jerusalem. God says, enough. David is pleading with the Lord. What have they done? Well, they had done something because they had kindled God's anger against them, but David didn't necessarily know the specifics. He just knows that tens of thousands of people in Israel, his beloved people are dying. He says, let the punishment be on me. Let, let me suffer for it. In commenting on these verses, John Woodhouse issues us a wise caution. Quote, before we object to this severe punishment, remember that we do not know what offense had kindled the Lord's anger. We are therefore hardly in a position to judge the punishment as excessive. Indeed, the severity of the punishment tells us that the offense must have been very great in the Lord's eyes. End quote. 
But even as the angel is about to strike Jerusalem, the Lord says, Enough! Enough! Stay your hand. Now the wrath of God in that moment was stayed, but it wasn't satisfied, right? It was was suspended, as it were, in that moment. Something had to be done to appease God's righteous anger, to satisfy His righteous anger if the judgment were to be resolved altogether, to be removed altogether. And in this moving gesture, David expresses his willingness to lay down his life for the sheep, for the Lord's people. But what's the problem? David's a sinner like everybody else. If David were to die, he would only be getting what he deserved. David was willing to die as a substitute for the people, but he couldn't. Another provision had to be made. And that takes us to the fourth point, the sacrificial offerings, verses 18 to 25. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and, and the threshing uh, sledges and, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the last act of David recorded in the books of Samuel. The offering of sacrifices. Burnt offerings and peace offerings. Burnt offerings were the most common sacrifices in the Old Testament. Their purpose was to atone for human sin by propitiating God's wrath. Now we could say they satisfied God's wrath or they appeased God's wrath, but But the best word that carries the full essence regarding the effect of the sacrifice is a very technical, precise word, propitiate, which theologian Wayne Grudem rightly defines this way. It's a simple one, easy to remember. Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us into favor. I want to write that down or at least burn it in your brain. Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and so doing turns God's wrath toward us into favor. And that's why David offered not only burnt offerings, but peace offerings. Peace offerings were a celebration 
of being at peace with God in all the blessings that come from it. So what David did at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite was hugely important. It carries tremendous significance. So much so that the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 22 says that when David saw that the Lord answered his plea, that God had heard his prayer, that God had received his sacrifices there at the threshing floor of Arana, then David said, and this is a direct quote from 1 Chronicles, then David said, here shall be the house of the Lord. And here, the altar of burnt offering for Israel. It would be David's son Solomon, who at this very site would build the temple. Burnt offerings would continue to be repeatedly offered for the ongoing sins of the people for a long time to come, centuries to come, until Jesus, the good shepherd, the righteous king, the one who was without blemish and without spot, justifiably, qualifiably laid down his life for the sheep. He is the one to whom all these sacrifices pointed. And that's why the author of Hebrews states this in chapter 10 of his epistle. Listen carefully to this understanding the context. But to these sacrifices, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings and such, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body that you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, meaning Jesus is saying this to God the Father, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the Scriptures. A short distance from the threshing floor of Arana, the perfect and complete sacrifice for the sins of the world took place when Jesus died on the cross for you and me. Three days later, he rose victoriously from the grave, proving that he had conquered sin and death for all who would trust in him as their Savior King. And for this reason, the Apostle Paul, who at one time was a a blasphemer, an insolent aggressor against God and his people, the arch enemy of the church, but a man who came to know Christ as his Savior King, said this in Romans 3, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, listen, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do at this present time, what he has done through Christ. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness so as to be just, 
and also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's directly from Romans 3. And brothers and sisters, this is good news. It was good news for David. It was good news for the people of Israel. That's why the angel said, you know, I bring you glad tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It was good news for David. It was good news for Israel. It was good news for Paul. It was good news for the nations of the world to whom Paul went out spreading the gospel everywhere. And it is good news for me. And it is good news for you. Sin is costly. But because of God's mercy, we can be forgiven and enjoy fellowship with him. So the question is, have you, like David, confessed your sins to the Lord? Have you placed yourself in God's hands? Have you entrusted yourself to the Lord's mercies, knowing that his mercy towards sinners is great? We sing a song here about that every now and then. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Do you believe that? Have you embraced the gift of salvation by trusting in the propitiatory sacrifice that God sent forward, His one and only Son? If you have not yet done that, will you repent of your sin and place your trust in Jesus Christ today? I urge you to do so. It's the most important thing you can ever do. It'll change the direction of your life and it impacts where you will spend eternity. Trust in Christ today. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you are already a Christian, are you living your life for the one who loved you and gave himself for you? In Romans 12, Paul writes to fellow believers saying, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. I remember attending a pastor's conference years ago where a speaker, I don't think it was this particular text, but he was teaching about this principle. And back then, and not far back, history even here, you'd have the passing of the offering plate. He said, you know what God wants more than your money? And he put this offering plate on the floor, and he stepped into it. What a visible picture that is. If God has you, then everything you have will belong to the Lord anyway. God doesn't need anything you offer him. But God loves you and wants you to enjoy him forever and ever. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Another translation says, this is your reasonable service. In other words, in light of all that God has done for you, it is the only appropriate response to such amazing mercy. 
David said, I will not offer to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. So the question is, what is your commitment to Christ costing you? Let's pray. Father, in this final chapter of 2 Samuel, we are faced with the sobering reality of our sin and yet the astounding greatness of your mercy toward undeserving sinners like us. Lord, thank you for including this account in your word that we may see the beauty and glory of Christ, our Savior King. Father, I pray that as we conclude our worship service today, that your word would long linger in our hearts and make a permanent imprint there so that we might embrace the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Surrender all that we are, everything we have to you, knowing that you are worthy of all our praise. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.